Shagan, welcome to the Lewis and Kyle show. Thank you for being here. Thanks for having me, guys. Absolutely. Um, so my first question is about me, uh, selfishly. So for for eight years after college, you were an employee. Uh, since then, you've had an illustrious career uh, and have done amazing things. But for a period of time there, you were working for other people. And I am in that period of my life right now. Uh, and it's hard because like, I do this podcast. I, I love entrepreneurship. I love reading about entrepreneurs. Like, you know, my identity is like, I want to be that, but I'm just not yet. And so how did you do that while you were an employee? Was that something that you struggled with? Did you really think about it? Um, what was that like for you? So I think everybody's journey is different, right? And you have to first be true to yourself. Like what drives you? What do you want? Why do you want to be an entrepreneur? Um, what about where you are now doesn't fulfill you? So you kind of have to really honestly dig into those things. For me, I already started doing entrepreneurial stuff before I went out full-time. I was doing side gigs here and there. I think I registered Xertis not long after I actually graduated college, using it to do consulting gigs here and there. And uh, the final straw, the thing that really pushed me out the door, to be honest with you, was my wife. She knew that's what I really wanted to do. And she was like, it's time for you to go do it. And I went out and I started doing it. So... Life is funny. I don't know how long I would have kept telling myself. There are many people out there who tell themselves this is what they want to do. And then they just never get out there to, until there's some kind of an external force or something else that kind of pushes them. A life event, a mentor, who knows, something, you know. A moment that moves them from wanting to be entrepreneurs to actually becoming entrepreneurs. The thing I'll tell you is in that, time, don't beat yourself up. There is a time to learn and then there's a time to do. And I would just take the pre-entrepreneurial time of your life as the time to learn and just fully take advantage of the learning with your eye open towards the opportunity when it presents itself. That's really, I, I would not spend this time killing your personal confidence. But if it's really what you want to do, then think about where to start from. Entrepreneurship doesn't always mean quit your day job. It can mean start a side gig like this podcast. It can mean exercise your ability to build an audience. It can mean so many things before the real thing begins. So every life has its own kind of multiple phases and multiple paths and you have to figure out which one is best for you. So when you were ready to go in full-time, if I have the chronology correct, was that software consulting something you had started kind of freelancing before you went full-time with it and so already had some kind of confidence, maybe a book of business, or was that something that was kind of a leap of faith? You said, I have the skill set and there should be demand. No, this thing's kind of start, you know, life is sometimes you just let serendipity take its course. You all, we all want to be children of good fortune and good luck. And sometimes we don't control that. We just position ourselves right. I believe my first foray into consulting work was actually somebody who wanted to set up a network for their office. And I did that with friends. And then one thing led to the other. I did have a partner that I was doing this with early, early on, the first iteration of Xertis. 
and we would build a website for people. We build networks for people. We had a software solution called Flarestar where we are taking, and all this time I had a regular job. We, we took um, Linux servers and we turned them into network servers. So it iterated and took on different forms. And then at one point, I pretty much just stopped all the side gig work, partly because I always wanted to build a SaaS business. And my business partner, at the end of the day, decided that the idea I wanted to build was not what he was interested in. But by then I had taken on some, some cash, some debt to kind of start building this product, printed materials. I still have some of the t-shirts probably somewhere that says Zertis healthcare systems. So you can see I've been thinking about this a long time. And when he said that, that was when we kind of went our separate ways and I kept the name and the company, but I stopped doing anything with it really. And then when the 2008, 2009 crash happened, I really stopped doing anything and just kind of focused on my job until when my wife kind of prompted me again, and then I took the leap. What I found really interesting and encouraging, um, one of your recent Substack articles, was that you said that you still firmly believe that the SaaS model is in its early days, which is encouraging for me because, you know, I see you kind of starting SaaS a decade ago, and I know of all these successful software companies that have come and gone, and you think that a lot of the market space has been taken and people have kind of already solved a lot of the big problems. And you had this ambition then, right? I want to create a software company. I want to create a SaaS company. And you still are a believer that it's a great business model today. I'm curious why that's still your thesis in terms of market space, business model, why you still think it's early and a great business model to work with. So if you think about it, um, it is software as a service, right? The service model has been around for how long? It's been around for a very, very long time and it hasn't gone away. Uh, and there are new businesses being launched every day using the service model. Uh, the agency model is still around. It's been around forever. So many business models have been around and they continue to be in existence and continue to thrive and people use them every day. Uh, so I believe there's still a lot of room for SaaS to run. I may be wrong thinking it's in the early days. I think it's hard to know if I'm right or wrong, but if I'm coming at it from the perspective of many, many industry segments that haven't yet gotten real SaaS penetration yet, uh, because there's still legacy platforms, legacy software, legacy pricing models, and they haven't changed at all in large segments of the economy, right? You still see a lot of that in finance and banking, you still see a lot of it in heavy industries. Uh, so there's still so many aspects of the economy that the, the, the SaaS model hasn't really penetrated yet, or is just beginning to penetrate. And then you'll also see some where the SaaS model has been slapped on legacy models in a sense, and it's kind of a hybrid thing going on, which sometimes can be an opportunity for disruption also. So that's kind of where I'm coming from, but I may be wrong on that. But at the same time, it doesn't really matter. What matters at the end of the day is what pricing model actually creates a win-win for you, for the business and for the customers. So we have businesses where we've kind of merged a SaaS-based model on top of a per-usage model, and it's all mixed into one business. There are all kinds of ways to kind of get this done. So it really depends on what you're trying to do with the customer. And that really ends up determining the business model. Yeah, I think um, your your 
definitely right. It's funny to see and to hear about the uh, softwares that people use in banking, for example, and like just how outdated uh, some of that stuff is and how prime it is for for innovation and all the technology is there. It's just the conservatism that kind of exists in those markets that don't want to have to learn anything new. But I'm curious, and I, I know you probably answered this before on a podcast, but with therapy brands, what was the initial problem that you identified? Uh, I guess while it was Zertus Healthcare Technologies, what was the initial problem that you identified? So it wasn't a new problem. Um, it was just a timing was a factor there, which is that a lot of the software in the mental health space was legacy software. This is part of what we're talking about, right? A licensing model for delivery, maybe on-prem model for delivery. Uh, there was solutions for community mental health. There were solutions for the hospital-based system because the government had kind of subsidized the penetration of EHR into that space. That subsidization did not exist for your private practice, your solo practice. So the price point had to come down to the delivery model that they could afford as practices for them to really adopt it. We had to move away from buying the software, having to do this big implementation and blah, blah, blah. So many of those practices couldn't do that. So I think we caught the timing of when the web was able to deliver a SaaS solution to these practices at the price point that they could afford using the SaaS model, cloud-based software solution, without all the costs of, 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 of the heavy implementation, high-end type software. So th that timing was important. And I think these, these practices were at the point where they were beginning to use things, QuickBooks Online, right? They were moving from the QuickBooks on the CD to QuickBooks Online. So naturally, they were looking to also migrate their practices from the legacy systems into, hey, why can't I use something that looks like Facebook and I pay like I pay for QuickBooks Online? And we kind of cut that, that trend also. So it was a couple of those things. Um... And we're able to find our position. I really like a situation where as part of your initial journey as a founder, that you look into really highly competitive spaces because was creating a new category and you just find a unique position within that competitive space. It's really an easier path for beginning uh, entrepreneurs because you can copy models messaging models, pricing models, pricing frameworks, things like that from the incumbent and match it to your niche and be successful versus having to really learn all that. The, the cost of learning a new uh, customer tied for a new category is pretty high. It's very high for most uh, entrepreneurs. It's also riskier for first-time founders. So I think... Um, you don't necessarily have to go find a new category for playing. You can actually find a better served niche within category to start with and then expand your time from there. One thing I was curious to ask you about, and I'm making notes here about a lot of that because it's just a lot of lessons I'm learning the hard way about trying to pivot into selling to a different customer base than I was and realizing I know nothing about them and their problems and 
there's lingo that you don't have any on hand, right? You got yep. on a sales call and you just sound like someone who's watched a 10 minute video on it versus kind of been in it. And those tiny details, but that infinite quantity of tiny details makes you so much less credible. And that kind of creates problems in the messaging on both yourself as a salesperson, but in terms of your communications on email and your website. And so that's something that I'm realizing is truer and truer every single day. One thing I'm curious about to, to ask you specifically is we've had a lot of founders on this podcast over the years and very, very few ideas reach the scale. So maybe they, they kind of take your, the same idea of, right? They find a small problem with a narrow subset of the market that they're solving in a unique way and kind of have maybe iterated in just one to three ways, right? Just better, uh, better product, different pricing model, some variation that makes it unique without reinventing the entire wheel. What do you think it was? And was this something that you had thought through at the outset that allowed your idea to scale so tremendously? Was it that initial idea that just had such a humongous market that you're able to just eventually over the course of years reach all of it? Or were there things you added along the way that allowed the company to get as big as it did? So there are things you always have to add along the way for any business to really get to scale. Um, sometimes it's out of your control. So these things, even when you add them, it, it, they, they do not guarantee anything. But here are the things I would say you really kind of have to focus on uh, to get to the kind of scale that's possible. Number one is the culture that you kind of create around the business should match the kind of scale you're trying to get to. So if you have a lifestyle type business culture, there's nothing wrong with lifestyle businesses. But if you have a lifestyle type business culture, it's hard to build a high growth business with just a laid back lifestyle type culture. Like you just have to really push hard and increase the pace of decision making and things like that. So that's, that's one. I think that the other thing is you have to take risks. And many times for founders, they just worry so much that they don't take the risks they need to take along the way. We really just pushed hard on product initiatives and product development based on the voice of the customer, because there are only three ways you're going to make money, right? You're going to get new customers. You're going to sell those new customers, more things, and you're going to make more money from the things you're selling them, right? Those, those are, at the end of the day, those are the three ways you can, you can make money. Brand new customers will pay you more for the same thing you're selling them, will buy new things from you. So when you're building a SaaS business, what does that mean? It means that you have to have an upgrade path for those customers to buy more things from you. You have to have new offerings, which means product development and risk-taking to sell more things to those customers. Uh, so that's the game. And sometimes if you develop a pricing model or a pricing structure or a product model that makes it very hard for you to expand, then you have a problem. We see that sometimes. I've had products where the way they've designed the feature set in the product and the way they've designed the pricing has taken away their ability to be able to grow with the customer. So their path of growth with the customer has become very, very difficult. So that even if the customer uses more of the product or if the customer grows, their growth rate is way lesser than the value they are creating for the customer. So you have to really think about those things. And then you have to think, what do I need to go build? So if you think about us, we are deep into payment, we're deep into telehealth and all these other things that kept expanding our average revenue per customer. 
And then we took risks also on some acquisitions, whether for technology or region that we kind of broke into to kind of grow also. So it's hard to scale without the risk taking. And sometimes people are so afraid to take that risk that they pull back. The other thing is it is hard to scale past the team. So when the team doesn't scale, it's hard for the business to scale. That's the other thing founders do sometimes. They stay in that small business mentality, small business mindset. They don't upgrade the team. They don't upscale the team. And if you don't do that, it's just not going to happen, man. I'm sorry. Like, um, your growth is an aggregate for your mental capacity to get there. The aggregate of the team you have in place. And, you know, if you don't really expand those things, if you don't bring in those elements, it is very, very hard for you to scale. If you bring scale-minded people into your company, they will create opportunities because that's just how they think. And if you scale in a way that causes you pain as a founder, you probably cap your scaling also because the systems that you use to scale matter a lot. So nobody out there just creates pain for themselves. So if scaling means pain, whether you're thinking about it consciously or not, you'll find ways to not keep scaling because more scale means more pain. Who does that to themselves? So there are all these things that kind of happen in the way you run a business that happens subconsciously for CEOs and founders that tends to affect how they think about these things and really kind of limits how they grow themselves. You know, I've run into leaders that just struggle to hire somebody that is outstandingly more competent than them in an area they really want to be experts in. Well, well, that's a problem because the person you bring into that role should be way better than you in that role. You may be a better leader, but they're better at that thing that you've hired them for. So it's all those things combined together, the ability to project a broader vision of where you're trying to get to it, the ability to find the right people to come in on the journey to go accomplish that vision, the ability to break through the ceiling of your mind in terms of what's possible, the ability to grow and scale without increasing your pain over the long run, even if there are some short-term pains, but you're thinking about, hey, what do we need systems, people, process to elevate past the pain? But if you have a small business mindset, you don't really think about those things and you cannot build a big business with a small business mindset. So if you have a small business mindset, you will find a way to stay small. There are exceptions to the rule. Some people choose to stay small and there's absolutely nothing wrong with that. And they build a great business with a great, they provide for their families and all that stuff. It has great cash flow. And I love those kind of businesses too. There's absolutely nothing wrong with them. So it doesn't mean everybody has to scale. Different people want different things and that's perfectly fine. But if what you want is high scale, high growth, big, big business, then all those other things really, really become important. That was an incredible answer. Um, wrote down a lot of notes. I think um, one thing that you said that's interesting in the context of therapy brands and Therapy Nest is just the being able to scale with your customers. And then in light of uh, mental health as a um, kind of, thing that's important having grown so much over the time that you you ran that business and that makes a lot of sense to me but you have to position yourself to be able to grow with that trend you can't just... many or many of those companies we started with that never grew right right so exactly more even in a fast growing 
industry, fast growing space, there were some of them who ended up looking at their numbers and were like, are you serious? That's, that's it. Yeah. <laughs> uh, so and one question that I have is we're going to own it because we can actually drive growth and we acquire it. So, and that comes back to you as the person who led the, uh, decision-making, led the pace, led the team, hired the people. And, uh, it's kind of a hard question to answer, I'm sure, but how did you evolve yourself? Uh, throughout that period of time? How did you grow up and, and change and become the type of person that's capable of running a high growth business? I mean, there's, there's one thing to want to have a high scale business, another thing to, to actually create it. So change is because change, th this is the formula for change. New information, action, change in behavior, right? And then you do that over and over and over and over. That's how you change. So there are many people that get information, but they don't change behavior. Well, then the information doesn't really matter, right? So what you do is you get information from people, from experiences, from learning, and you take those things and you apply them to yourself and you tell yourself, what do I believe to be true about me or about the world that is actually not, it can't be true if this next phase is going to happen and then you make the change. And sometimes it is, what do I need that I don't have? And I need to go find somebody who has it because I am not interested in even having it. For example, I am not a detail-oriented person, right? There are certain things I'm more detail-oriented about, and there are several things that I just don't care to be in the details. So if I want to scale, I need to find somebody who is detail-oriented to own those things. Because the time it would take for me to change my inclination is going to probably not, and it's going to cause me pain. So I probably don't freaking want to do it. <laughs> so, so that's the thing. Uh, so it is applied knowledge. It is applied knowledge that really changes you over time. And you get that knowledge from interacting with people, interacting with books, interacting with new information. And then you ask yourself, what way that I do things now needs to be different? What skill set or expertise do I need to have? Or do I need somebody on this team to have that is not present? And you make those changes and that's how things happen. And sometimes people know that, but there's inertia and they don't take the actions necessary to kind of do the things to do. So I think one system that you kind of keep hinting at is incentives and kind of just a, a truth that you have to acknowledged to, to be effective. So when you say that if scaling is pain, then you're not incentivized to scale because, you know, human interest is incentivized to avoid pain. Are there other tricky incentive traps that you find a lot of people get stuck in that prevents them from seeing the success that they want in their businesses? Yeah. Um, money is one. Uh, sometimes the, the, and I'm not saying this is good or bad, it's neither good nor bad. We all have different journeys that we're on. There are some people that the ceiling for what they see as what they need monetarily is at this level. And once they get there, they're fine. And there's absolutely nothing wrong with that. And they're not going to do anything more than that. But sometimes you can also bring those kind of people onto your team, which then caps what, what their drive is going to be on the team and it kind of reverberates through the system. So that's one. The other is fear, right? Sometimes people may take actions out of fear, not out of opportunity. And that drives a totally different type of behavior and incentive than an opportunity driven behavior. 
So there are all these things that are inherent in human nature that drives our behavior. Sometimes some of them are subconscious, but you know, fear, pain, love, wealth, recognition, how important are those things to you? There are founders who their measure of success is how popular they are. So when their business is at the stage where they should be sitting down and grinding it out, they're running from one conference to the other. They're running from one show to the next, and it's given them the satisfaction they kind of subconsciously need, but it's doing it at the expense of their business. And then they turn around and they're out of cash. But that's because they were satisfying something inside them. And they didn't quickly recognize that fame was more important to them than actual real tangible success. So, so you to not, to, to thine own self be true is a really important thing for a founder and then you. And we all have these vices and we just have to figure out ways to mitigate them. There's one question in my mind that I, I want to ask. I'm not sure exactly how to ask it. You obviously had a big exit, uh, which is a, a huge deal and it's big for our city. There's this moment I th I, I'm imagining where it's uh, Shagan five years ago and Shagan five years ago could walk into any room and maybe not any room, but a lot of rooms and no one would know who you were and you weren't this like, uh, entity or like famous person, as you just put it. And now there's kind of like a, an expectation or responsibility, uh, that comes with that exit and that, uh, you know, recognition. How do you think about that? Cause like it's, it is obvious that there are people that are going to seek you out and, and treat you differently. And, and that's something you have to deal with, but I'm just curious. Um, you know, I don't, I don't think that's a great way of asking that question, but I think you know what I'm, I'm saying or getting at. Yeah, I think life is in phases. So it's a phase. And mm. just as we were talking about, it was a phase that I kept resisting for a while, even though there was very little I could do about it. So I've always been the kind of founder that just stayed, did a stain under the radar. Most people didn't even know the, the scale and size of the business. Then you get into this new phase where at least in your local area, nobody really knows me if I go anywhere else. <laughs> nobody has a clue who I am. And I get the taste of my old life when I go into other tech circles or tech events and other places like that, because nobody has a clue who I am. And I like that too. So that's what I used to really like, right? And it gave me the time to really dig into my business, no distractions, no Kyle and Louis telling me to come on their podcast, you know? <laughs> I could just, I could just do my thing and focus on my business and nobody was asking for extra time. It was all about my family, my health, my business. But then you get into this new phase and in this new phase, you have to adjust and you have to say, what does this mean? And part of that has been my own journey over the last couple of years of what does this mean? Um, am I going to make this painful for me? Which means I'll be avoiding it. Or am I going to turn this into a positive, which means I'm going to lean into it. And there is no point crying over spilled milk, right? So, so I'm just going to lean into it and I'm going to say, what does this mean? Uh, how can I leverage this? How can I actually significantly increase my impact? How can I significantly increase my reach? And what does that mean? I've been fortunate and I've worked hard. I've also been lucky. It's a combination of all these things. And with this access, what does that mean? Yes, it's going to come with new risks, 
Yes, one of the things I really hate is public failure. I'm probably going to have some public failures now because I'm more public in person. How am I going to deal with that? How am I going to process that? So those, those are the new faces, the new phases you actually get into as, as this phase of life changes. So I am on that journey now, uh, getting comfortable with speaking engagements and putting things out there in the world and seeing where it goes. And I'm sure some of them will be successful and many of them are going to fail and some of those failures are going to be embarrassing. And uh, I just have to remind myself the things that are really, really important and that in the process, I can do a lot of good. I can affect a lot of people's lives. I can affect a lot of founders and I can make a lot more of an impact in many, many ways, financially, socially, all other kinds of ways by just leaning into the new phase of life that I found myself. So I think that's, it's exciting. And I think that your framing of these different phases of life has been very, seems like you've found a way to always kind of be peaceful about where you are and spin things in a very positive way, which I think is really interesting and encouraging. I want to ask about some of the ways in which you are now directing the, the resources and advantages that you've created for yourself to make an impact, whether that's financially, socially, et cetera. So what are kind of some of the, the big initiatives? I know you have a venture studio and you've launched several companies. I believe you're still acting as the CEO of a new one. What is kind of the way that you're framing the big initiatives in this phase of life? So two things, um, really, there's a third, but these two are the top. Really drive me and my actions because I think these two things really change lives significantly. They've changed my life. They've changed so many lives. I think they're the most important element in alleviating human suffering in the physical, uh, and that's economic empowerment and learning and education, right? And those two things come in various forms, right? Learning and education come in various forms. There's formal education, there's informal learning, and both are the ways to change your lives. Part of what we're doing in this podcast is going to be a learning event for some people that may change their lives. And then there is economic empowerment, which comes in various forms, a good job, a high paying job, whatever it is. But for me, the highest form of economic empowerment from my perspective is the ability to create entrepreneurs and help them be able to impact other people because the scale is compounded, the effect is compounded. So that's a lot of where my personal energy goes beyond charitable stuff that we do. Even on the charitable side, those two things still kind of take preeminence, really like economic empowerment type things, and then education and learning type things. And then maybe a third would be like children's health or something like that. So those, those, those two things are really still core to really what drives a lot of my energy, my time, my activity today. Teaching, learning, speaking, building companies, building people, creating companies, creating things. Um, some of those things are social impact type entrepreneurship type companies. And some of them are full on, let's go build something big. Uh, but th th those, those two things really are where my energy. I really like the <clears throat> overarching goal of alleviating human suffering. That seems like a, a first principles approach um, to this phase of life and a, and a good litmus test to hold up like any of your actions too. Um, and I also think that the prescribed solutions being economic empowerment and education are, are clearly 
the answers there. And it's funny in the context of your kind of definition of your own education earlier being applied knowledge. Um, and so how do you allocate resources toward um, an effort to help people apply knowledge? If that makes sense. Or what are you doing in that vein versus like, you know, uh, Obviously, the biggest resource I have is my time, right? Mm -hmm. uh, in, in many ways, my time is probably more valuable than money now to me. I have four children, I have a wife, businesses, so my time is pretty, pretty important. So one is how do I allocate my time to those things? How do I allocate my time to helping other people, to coaching other people, uh, to helping our companies? What do I need to learn that I'm allocating time to learning so I can keep getting better? Uh, so that's, that's one way. From a resource allocation standpoint, outside of time, then it becomes money. So that means, um, what do we give to, what do we invest in, uh, both as an individual, as companies, as a family. So those are decisions that you cannot take one at a time. You know, you think about some of those things, like you have a limited number of chips, right? And you're going to place bets and you double down on some bets and some bets you're like, Hey. I've lost that one. I'm just going to let it go, <laughs> move on to the next one. And over time you learn, you get picky, you do better in terms of investing your time and your resources. So that's a learning journey. Some people do it way better than I do and I keep getting better at it. So I think we'll do a couple of rapid fire questions before we wrap up here, specifically on the investment side in terms of economic empowerment through helping create companies using your capital, your skills, your knowledge, et cetera. What is the kind of broad thesis in terms of companies, markets, et cetera, that when you see an opportunity that comes your way, like that's going to be the type of thing that you're excited to add your resources to help grow. You're like, those types of things are good ideas for companies right now. First is the person. Is this person, does this person have grit? Are they determined? Are they resourceful? That's where it starts from. Because if you take a great idea and you give it to a mediocre person, you're going to end up with mediocre results. And sometimes you can take a kind of, kind of okay idea, give it to a great person, and they just run with it and turn it into something magical. So it starts with the person. It's like the Buffett saying, uh, I like businesses that, uh, how does he say? I think he says, I like businesses that uh, idiots can run because one day an idiot is going to run it. <laughs> something like that. So that's the second thing. The business model, right? So first, I really would prefer businesses run by fantastic people. But secondly, I would prefer a business that's not fundamentally broken by nature. Uh, and sometimes when I just see some, some ideas in the way they are presented, it's just fundamentally broken and there is no, there's no way to make it scale. If you're trying to raise investment around it, there's just no way to make it scale. For example, if the way you've designed the business and the delivery model and the business itself is going to be a very small addressable market, and it's not a business I'm interested in for cash flow, why would I make the investment, right? It may be a great investment for the entrepreneur, but it's not an investable thing for me. So with each thing, you kind of answer those questions, but ultimately it starts with people and then an idea that I believe in and that person strongly believes in and has the potential to have the kind of impact I'm looking within the context of that business. 
So if it's, if, if the impact is meant to be localized and small, sure, I'm in, if that's what I'm looking for. If the impact is meant to be VC level type returns, then that's kind of what I'm looking for, right? So it depends on really what the outcome is supposed to be. And if the investment, if the chips you're putting on the table are actually going to match uh, the outcome. Why have you decided to stay and invest in Birmingham? It is where I found myself right now, right? Now, Birmingham is home, and obviously I invest outside of Birmingham. I invest everywhere. But primarily Birmingham is home. I believe we do have an obligation to the people around us and the places we find ourselves. There is a certain level of, what would I, I'm looking for the right word to call it. I'm not sure if satisfaction is the right word, but let's go with satisfaction or fulfillment, right? There's a certain level of satisfaction and fulfillment in seeing your own impact in your own community, in seeing economic expansion that you've been part of making happen in your own community, in seeing people learning and growing that you were part of making happen in the, in your own community that you found yourself, you know, you have an obligation first to your own home and then everywhere else. So Birmingham in a sense is an extension of my home. It's where my wife is from. It's where my kids are growing up in. It's where I found myself. It's where I got an education from. It's where I met people who've invested in my own life. Uh, do I know whether I'll be here 15 years from now? Obviously I don't, but it is where I am now. And wherever I am 15 years from now, will have the same level of commitment from me. So, because it is where I found myself. But my hope is that my impact, whether it's small or big, is not just limited to Birmingham, right? It extends beyond Birmingham to all other kinds of places in ways that are congruent with me, in ways that I'm happy and satisfied with in the things that I want it to be impactful about. So just think of Birmingham as HQ and the whole world is just branches. You got to take care of HQ too, right? Just as you're expanding all over the place. This will be my final question. I don't know if Kyle has one more or not. And again, I want to definitely thank you again for your time and sharing so many valuable ideas with us and whoever's listening, I think, or if they were listening at all, even with a fraction of their attention, they had to get some really great ideas from this. So just wanted to say that. My final question, we've talked a lot about applied knowledge in this conversation. Is there one idea, and we've talked a lot about why you might have a, an idea that you know is the right thing to do, but just inertia and kind of other self-limiting patterns uh, prevent you from actually taking action on that idea. Is there one idea that you've, you knew for a long time in your career like would be the key to reaching the next level and just for personal inertia or the difficulty of kind of an identity change, you took longer than you would have liked to finally take action based on that idea. Just one thing that you knew was right and just put off and put off and put off. And then when you finally did decide to make the behavior change, there was a big growth on the other side. Yeah. Um, if I'm being honest with myself, well, maybe this is a time for vulnerability here. That one idea would be, I just really resisted putting myself out there for so long. Even though I knew from a deal flow standpoint, from a relationship standpoint, from an impact standpoint, from partnerships standpoint, uh, from being a source of inspiration to other people's standpoint, it, it will be good. I think it, I just didn't want to do it. <laughs> Even though my team was saying, we got to do it. I was like, nope, 
And I did not fundamentally have a problem with it. I just didn't want to do it. Like, I don't have a problem. I'm not one of those people that has a problem with being popular. Like, that's not the issue. I just didn't want to do it, you know. I didn't want to put the time and resources and energy into doing it, you know. That probably didn't serve me in the next phase of life, to be honest with you. So that would be, that would be, that would be one thing there. I'm sure there are others, but that comes to mind just because of recency. Uh, so that'll be one, but trust me, there are several things that I probably should have moved a little faster on. From a flaw standpoint, one thing I definitely take too long to take action on, and it still sometimes affects me, is I'm very slow to get rid of people when they're just not at the level they should be. I give them a chance and I give them another chance. And there, I would say 99 out of 100 times, it's just worked against me. But by nature, I'm just this optimist for people that this person is going to figure it out, going to figure it out. Even though I have like 100 cases to show that I'm probably going to, uh, there's a 98% chance I'm wrong, I still do it. And I tell myself every time I finally make that decision that, man, I'm not going to do this again. But hey, the next time I still do it again. I'm trying to get better on that. So those would be... Two things that just really come to mind. I'm pretty sure there are several others. Well, Lewis and I are glad that you uh, decided that coming out of your your cave or your shell was the right move so that Lewis and Kyles could reach out to you so that we could produce this podcast so that whoever's listening could be uh, impacted. So we're grateful for you uh, and for you coming on. Is there anywhere where you'd like to direct our audience's attention while we have it? That's one of those things I'm still figuring out, right? I'm, I'm getting out the writing articles, trying to be active on social media, doing a terrible job at it. But if you go to shagunotulana.com, S-H-E-G-U-N-O-T-U-L-A-N-A.com, you'll find stuff about me. Let's build blog that you guys have referenced a little bit. You'll see the connection to my Twitter page. You should follow me on Twitter. Or what do we call it now? X. So yeah, th those will be, it'll be great for, for folks to reach out and join me on the journey. I'm going to learn from them. Hopefully they can learn from me also. Links will be in the description. Thank you so much, Shagan, for your time today. Thank you, guys. It's good to talk to you guys.